Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean, these comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> Welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. For this week, I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and this podcast comes to you twice weekly with the support of the Crawford School of Public Policy. The PM, Scott Morrison, has unveiled a $270 billion defence boost, including missiles and other super expensive technology, as a burgeoning Cold War threatens to become a dangerous hot one at some point. Strangely, less thought and investment went into the preparedness for a pandemic, despite plenty of warnings that a superbug would wreak havoc and take lives and could happen at any time. That time, of course, is now, and yet despite that mismanagement, governments across the country, including the national one, have gone up in public support, with premiers like Peter Gutwin and Mark McGowan registering 93% approval ratings, according to uh, recent polls. I'm delighted to welcome to the barbecue area one of Australia's highest profile and most respected journalists and authors, the ABC's chief writer and all-round most versatile broadcaster, the one and only Annabelle Crabb. Welcome, Annabelle. Hello. Uh, it's very nice to be with you. Um, I'll be having a vegetarian democracy sausage, please. <laughs> That's the way, because I, I was a little bit intimidated about having someone like you at the hot plate because, I mean, someone who does cooking shows and is an expert Look, at recipes, I've seen this. a very difficult to bugger up in my experience, Mark. <laughs> but, yes, I, yes, um, I, I, I have noticed over the last decade or so that uh, polling booths often do have a vegetarian option, which is not something that you would have seen uh, a bit longer ago than that. So I'm often no, that's in right. a very good position. I also like the bake stall, but there you go. So you don't go for the actual fully uh, sort of traditional meat snag? No, I do not. I've not I haven't eaten meat since I was about 17. So um I'm I'm mm. really out of the habit. So uh, if they've got a a bit of a halloumi um in a roll, I'll go for that or a vegetarian snag even though I mean I actually think vegetarian snags have about as much real meat in them as uh genuine as uh, general snags but um you know 
I guess only a, a qualified lab technician would be able to establish the truth of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, as as you know, uh, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. Uh, this may be a shock to some people, given the name of this podcast, but uh, I'm not eating the uh, the meat snag either. Um, <laughs> I thought I might I might uh, rumble you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the other thing I, I wasn't planning to do this, but the other thing that's interesting about this, the title of this podcast is that it does draw its name from the the very uh, tradition that you uh, referenced a minute ago. The uh, the, the, the card table with the sausage sizzle going outside the polling booth, yep. which has become very much a staple around the country. But it also draws its name from that idea, you know, that old quote of Bismarck or yep. whoever said it, it that uh, the voters didn't want to see. It was supposed to be, and I'm not sure about the, the derivation Look, of it. it's one of but those ones that's tossed around a little bit, I think, but the, the, the majority support seems to be from Bismarck. Yes, uh, and the voters don't want to see how the sausage is made. They, they might be happy to eat it, but they don't really want to see the process. <laughs> well, we're all about the process here. Anyway, along those lines, I thought we'd start out just talking about how Scott Morrison is going. Obviously, he's riding high in the polls, as I said a minute ago, mm. as most moderately competent governments are in this crisis. But is there a sense, and this is a, um, a, a feeling that I have about the way he is performing. Some people are going to reject this violently, but... Mm. Is there a sense that he's actually also doing something that really no prime minister has done since the late 90s when you think about it? He's learning on the job. We saw John Howard do that. He only scraped through the 98 election and, uh, um, and, and you know, had some pretty big reform, obviously. We're recording this on the 20th anniversary of the introduction of the GST, which was, mm. you know, the dominant political issue then. But Howard had time to learn on the job. He made it from one election to the next. No prime minister has actually done it since Howard. Here we are sitting at 2020 and no prime minister has actually been elected by the people and made it to the next election at all. Uh, and so they haven't really had time to grow or learn on the job. 2004 is the last time uh, a prime minister won an election and then contested the next one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But what I'm saying is none since Howard. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm saying that he learned on the job between 96, 98, 2001, say, mm. um, and obviously developed as a prime minister. But the point is he had time to do so. Uh, and yeah. once we get to the Rudd era, Rudd doesn't make it, Gillard doesn't make it, Abbott doesn't make it, Turnbull doesn't make it, and now we're now we're at uh, Morrison, and it looks like he's going to make it, of course, yeah. because the rules have changed, and you know we, we can't really see it going the other way. But um, well, I'm, who knows? I've always been of the view that first term governments are usually completely rubbish. I mean, they're actually hmm. no good at governing and it takes a while to learn and you know particularly if you've spent a long time in opposition but if you have a look at Rudd in 2007 he won a just a significant campaign victory but went into government with I think only two ministers who'd ever been even briefly in the Minwing before so that was I think Simon Crean and John Faulkner were the only two people that had mm. ever served as ministers before. And if you look at the Rudd campaign of 2007, it was full of all this sort of, we're going to throw open the doors of democracy and let a little sunshine in, etc. all the sorts of things that you hear leaders saying um, when they haven't got any experience of um, just how grindingly frustrating a task governing um, as, a, as a Commonwealth government in this country um, can be. And I mean, um, Howard in his series of headland speeches before um, 1996 set out all sorts of broad um, um, ideological and strategic positions and then 
hit the ministerial wing and was immediately, you know, had his tyres shot out with all sorts of governance issues and travel rorts and everything that kind of can complicate your life as a as a new government. Um, now, he had a huge enough margin in 1996 that he was able to hang on by the absolute skin of his teeth in 1998. Um, and that He lost the popular vote, didn't he? But he, he just right. won the seats. Yeah, uh, he did. And, but he had a big enough margin um, that he was able narrowly to succeed. And I actually think, you know, if you are comparing um, John Howard with Scott Morrison, Scott Morrison has a strategic advantage over, <laughs> over 98-era Howard in that he didn't have a particularly ambitious agenda when he went to the um, uh, to the people in um, in May last year, you know, I mean, he was graced, I suppose, with an opposition that was proposing to do a whole lot of stuff. Um, he hadn't been prime minister for very long, um, and there had been this sort of jumbled and um, vicious assortment of um, internecine rivalries that infected his side before he went to the election in 2019. Essentially what he went to the election promising was the tax cuts um, and not to do anything that Bill Shorten was promising to do. Hmm. And obviously things started out very badly um, with the bushfires and, um, and the Prime Minister's really inept response to them um, and things went south pretty quickly. But the point at which I think he did learn about um, how to respond to disaster and how to, to, to lead people through it, I guess, uh, became apparent pretty quickly in the early days of COVID-19. And I mean, here again, he benefited from his lack of um, ideological shingle in that, I mean, can you imagine Malcolm Turnbull deciding to form a national cabinet and let in all these Labor premiers who actually almost had the numbers on that um, on that group? I mean, it's it sort of, I don't think he would have survived a day doing that. But it was something that um, Morrison, because of the, um, the strength of his unexpected victory, because of um, his lack of internal vicious opponents, um, he managed to do that and it was something that really resonated with people more broadly because we're so unused to seeing different sides of politics cooperate in the public interest that I think when we saw it happen in the context of genuine crisis, it was something that people really appreciated. And I think I think that that has probably bought him the ears of people who might otherwise have been um, really shut off to politics for quite some time. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I certainly agree with you about uh, him lacking an agenda to begin with. I mean, he didn't really expect to win, a bit like Trump didn't expect to win. Certainly Morrison's team was not expecting to win. All the polls showed that Labor was going to win. And he really ran on that uh, platform of, you know, don't be Labor, don't go with Labor's uh, huge sure, suite yeah. of spending promises. There was also a kind of a subliminal message, which is don't be Abbott or Turnbull either. I mean, he was kind of the clean skin who wasn't either of those two old lions of the... Um, yeah, it was you know, of the Liberal Party's division, loathed by most of the, by both of them <laughs> after the uh, <laughs> That's right. after the events of That's the, right. uh, the, the latest leadership spill. So yeah, I mean, and there is you know some sort of comfort in being 
despised by both combatants it sort of keeps things calm well it does and 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 it just sort of it just wrestled itself to an utter standstill the coalition <laughs> on on that and uh, and yeah. suddenly there's Scott Morrison standing there uh, talking about um you know kind of um you know going to the footy and so forth i guess we can talk about that Go as shots. well but yeah, yeah, that's the one. Um, but but look, I'm re- I'm interested uh, in this uh, point you make about um, you know the bushfires, the juxtaposition of that and the handling of the uh, of, of the COVID crisis. Because uh, certainly the way I've viewed it is that um, his his kind of in a sense near death political experience or his his, his brush with political mortality uh, after that miracle win, as he described it in 2019. It was made very clear to him, I think, by his Hawaii holiday and, uh, you know, his, the way he handled, you know, delayed going down to the fire grounds and so forth. Just mm. the absence of leadership. It was made very clear to him how not to do it. And mm. he was blessed in a way, and I don't wish, wish to suggest that anyone would want this, but he was blessed in a way by the sudden hoving into view of this, of this other crisis, which was a genuine national and international crisis. And as you say, he then he then goes about, I think, trying to do it manifestly differently from yeah. the way he's done it on the bushfires. And you have the the formation of the national cabinet. You're right. I don't think Turnbull could have done it, but I think Morrison, being so good at at kind of marketing, as people say as well, he he also knew that the gesture itself ratcheted up the uh, the kind of urgency and focus and authority with which he needed to um, you know proceed and get things done and uh, yeah. you know so the announcement the announcement value of the national cabinet was was really strong and we've of course yeah. seen him since very strongly aligned behind the medical experts for the most part and also behind the states having their own jurisdictional responsibilities for a whole range of things and he's he's sort of yeah. sought to project that as well so it's been well, it a that, that's sort of what I mean by growing yeah I mean it also gave him an opportunity to lead vigorously in an area that wasn't already just laid with the you know um, IEDs of previous leaders you know like yeah. there are so there are heaps of areas of policy I reckon um, on both sides of politics too that are so so infected with the bad blood of the past that you can't even say anything sensible, you know, in those areas without immediately kind of um, uh, conjuring those those mm. rules. And I think that this is, you know, new crisis, new challenge. And, I mean, you know, it's, it is really instructive, I think, to look at the last few months and say, hey, look, you know, uh, this is a country that, unlike America, can come together, lay down its political weapons for a while in the face of a menacing and frightening um, enemy slash threat and make sensible decisions. I mean, and now we've been unable to do that on climate for 10 years, so it's a really interesting comparison in response to threat, I think. Do you think it changes that climate question? Uh, there's been a lot of wishful thinking or hopeful uh, kind of speculation about that. No, I don't think it does. Um, I do think, though, it probably gives, and this may um, contribute to Anthony Albanese's um, recent offer to find some sort of accord uh, on climate. It, it gives, and I think this is useful, both sides of politics a, a little taste of how much people like it 
when a compromise is reached and when people make concessions. Because, you know, I mean, that is one of the, the hard things about politics now is that even though when the Australian parliamentary system was devised, its principal purpose was for people who disagree to come together and work out, you know, a solution that annoys the least number of people. Um, you know, I, I think one of the great difficulties that our democracy is going through is that we have weaponized conflict. We've, we've, um, in a way, um, uh, political disagreement has a has a value to the protagonists that is greater than the value of consensus and that's a really bad place to be and certainly climate is the leading area i think where it is worth more sometimes to protagonists to disagree loudly with each other uh, than it is to um, reach and uh, a consensus that would be viewed as flawed by um, by everybody for different reasons. But that is supposed to be what democracy is about, right? Like, you know, you, no one's ever completely happy, but you come up with something that is um, broadly acceptable to everybody. Yeah, well, I think what people are embracing, as you say, is compromise, but it's also this notion of problem solving, which actually yeah. when you get down to it is what the whole business of government is about. Um, of course. Mm. It's about problem solving, and that has been a very strong focus of the COVID response. Uh, it's been a very strong absence in the climate response, really. Yeah. Uh, we, we, and it's so inflamed that we, we yeah. have the, the two sides not able to agree with each other or not even able to agree with their own former selves. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That happens, but <laughs> it's I, extraordinary. I, think, I think beyond you know the the um, issues of how do you um, how do you maintain the health and safety in the in the COVID nineteen era and whatever. I mean, like beyond the specific problems occasioned by this pandemic, I do think that um, a genuine crisis that seizes the whole country and puts us all, you know, um, in the frame is an opportunity to do things differently. I think it is, I mean, ask any business operator that has um, evolved and changed and um, and learned how to do new things differently over the course of this pandemic. I mean, I think we're a different country now from mm. the way we were a few months back. And, I mean, I'm a sort of demented optimist, but I do think that there is a real opportunity here um, for um big decisions, good decisions to be made for this nation. And, you know, from a, for a guy who really won the last election without a very big to-do list, I mean, the Prime Minister now has a massive to-do list and a, a huge opportunity, I think, and he's um, set himself a few dangerous rhetorical questions like, you know, well, how would we redraw our IR system? Hmm. Um, there's this energy review, you know, the technology investment roadmap, which is maturing alarmingly soon as well. So there's an energy element. There's what do we do about um, what was New Start? I mean, um, there are big decisions as to how this government is going to approach welfare um, uh, when the job keeper, job seeker um, period comes to an end and there's still a lot of people needing support. And then, of course, there's the decision about um, about 
the federal state relations and tax reform. You've got a very, very ambitious uh, New South Wales Treasurer, Dominic Perrottet, who's about to release his review of federal state uh, financial relations, which I think will be quite provocative. So there's all sorts of things that uh, the Prime Minister could adopt as his signature reforms. Um, I think he's aided by his lack of um, previously expressed um, ideological um, um, uh, predilection on Mm. these issues and I think he also is aided by the fact that we've learned that we can make change and crisis is a good opportunity to make change. Yeah, that's a very good point. Let's take a quick break there and when we come back, take up that uh, point about uh, what he might be able to change. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Uh, now, we were talking before about, uh, you know, this being a, a moment of uh, potential change, this crisis. Um, it struck me while you were talking, Annabelle, that many organisations, we, we see this written all over the economy, many organisations, companies are restructuring, they're having to do so, they're changing the way they work, they're thinking about what they're going to do as they come out of this and and virtually all of them say that in some way they're going to be different. The hard truth is in many cases they're going to be smaller, less travel, more working from yep. home, all kinds of different uh, different changes. Some some companies, I guess, returning to tours a bit, you know, realising that there are certain things that they've sort of built up over time that uh, are no longer really uh, – they're not really part of their original core mission and they perhaps won't be going back to. So there's, there's so much happening and the risk here is that we could have a government that doesn't make any changes – that, that wastes this opportunity. There's a lot of hope around at the moment, as you say. There's a lot of people talking, yeah. Dominic Perrottet and others talking tax reform, um, but uh, we haven't seen much in the way of courage for reform from, um, you know, certainly from this government and um, not not much really in the last decade. So, Sure. I mean, look, the old adage, of course, is that it, it's it's the first term where you need to really stamp out and lay out um, your reform agenda because often it'll take you (laughs) a huge amount of time to get it through the Senate. Um, I guess, um, you know, uh, the Abbott government in 2014 handed down an absolute cracker of a budget that had lots of memorable restructuring in it, right? (laughs) Like, but all of it ended up in in the voodoo aisle of the Australian Senate. So, I mean, there have been attempts to do 
vast things. Um, no, you, you're right there. So it wasn't exactly mandated, but it was certainly vast. No, right. Well, I mean, that was the sort of sneak up and say boo version of, um, of reform. <laughs> um, but I, look, I do think it, the, uh, the incomplete first term of the Morrison government was probably just a sort of a, a bit of a seat warming exercise. No one was expecting Scott Morrison to be prime minister when he was probably including Scott Morrison. So um, I think this is, you know, this term is the definitive one if he's going to try and bite off a big reform like um, restructuring federal state financial relations, maybe reforming the GST, maybe revisiting that idea of um, of um, changing up income tax to give the states an uh, opportunity to access that. I mean, the the great imbalance of the federal state financial relations in this country is immortal. Like it's just it, various leaders have tried to have a crack at it, which is, you know, the what the states do gets more and more expensive every year, but their tax base shrinks or becomes more kind of sclerotic and difficult. Hmm. So they re- they rely on support from the Commonwealth and the process by which they get that is uh, I don't know, usually um, over time gets encrustulated by political difficulty um now if you could come up to a come up with a um an elegant solution for that long term i think um you would end up with a much more economically run federation the question is um you know are you ever going to get a prime minister that's on sufficiently good terms with state and territory leaders to actually do that and arguably look this guy is better better placed than anyone any federal leader that I can remember um, because he's in a group of people who have been as a national cabinet meeting together for months and months, not in that kind of coag way where they book a room in Canberra and everybody prances along with a hundred press secretaries and, you know, advisors and bureaucrats and it becomes this performative piece where everybody's looking to see which Premier flounces out first or who denounces the federal government, you know, the most eloquently on their way either in or out. This is a much more personal format where they're all phoning in or Zooming in or whatever from their from their own homes, from their own seats, from their own electorates. I mean, that actually has a more genuine federalist feel to it than mm. the absolute, you know, um, fast that COAG had become. I mean, the last time COAG was really useful was probably actually in the GST era. Um, So I think we're ready for a redraw. And I think that that um, extemporised model that that formed over the COVID crisis unexpectedly has proven quite successful. The question is, you know, can it be turned to other more rusted on uh, problems. It'll be just fascinating to see um, uh, if it can be. Yeah, well, Ken Henry, of course, the former um, Secretary of Treasury who uh, famously did the Henry Tax Review, uh, has made the point that if you're going to do it, the, the two times that they that it can be done, this is um, you know significant tax reform, for example, is uh, you know when things are really booming, or yeah. and you can afford it, or when you have a crisis like this. And, and you're he's what anyway. is. 
<laughs> yeah, you're screwed anyway. And what he's saying is that yeah, you can, when when things are really booming, you can actually afford to buy the change. Now, it's yeah. it's something that I think people haven't properly grasped. This idea that there will be some significant losers from uh, a tax change, for example, in broadening the base or increasing the rate or both of the GST. But if you're prepared to compensate the losers in that process, mm. and you may even be prepared to go backwards fiscally for the first two or three years or whatever it might yep. be in order to put in place proper structural reform. Now, this isn't a boom time like that, but it is a time when vast amount of borrowing is happening uh, yep. in order to do that restructuring. The goodwill is there, uh, or at least it's it's potentially there. Uh, Plus, so, if, you, if you have a look at if you have a look at you know the the state taxes that are the worst, you know. Um, stamp duty on property and payroll tax. Well, both of those, I mean, they're tanking because um, of the decline in um, exchange of properties, you know. People are freaked out because values are diving, everyone's uncertain. The same thing is happening, of course, to the employment market. So you've got state governments, I think, now that are extremely attuned to the um, incipient failure of those two taxes that they've really, really heavily, um, if slightly shamefacedly, uh, relied upon. So, you know, people are, I guess that the stakeholders are driven to the table by a sense of crisis and a need for reform. And um, that's a really powerful driver, I think, in politics. Mind you, there's no such thing as the ideal time to do something crazy on tax. I mean, like, you know, I remember when, uh, so when John Howard announced in 1996 as he was going into this campaign, you know, bleeding from a million bullet holes, you know, he'd done some quite remarkable things that had got him into trouble with various constituents like gun reform and stuff. Um, and, I mean, he announced quite late in the piece. Um, so this is 98, was, right? Yeah, 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 in 98 no, yeah, yeah. that he was um, – so post-96, in the, when he was going into the 98 election, which is an early election obviously, he sort of said to his colleagues, oh, by the way, I'm going to be, um, going to be campaigning on uh, introducing a GST. And, of course, you know, his words that, he, that Australia would never, ever have a GST were still ringing in uh, the electorate's ears. I mean, he did the honourable thing, took it to an election, you know, if mm. you hate it that much, then vote me out. And they, they nearly did. But, I mean, um, so... It just wasn't I like guess- Chris Bowen said it uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, he um, he did, uh, yeah, it, it was very horrifying for some of his colleagues at the time when he decided yes. to do that, but um, he got there, got there in the end. And, and in fact, as Peter Costello points out, uh, they really won two elections uh, fighting the, defending the GST because sure, it was introduced 20 election. years ago. Mm. That's right, the 2001 election, Labor pledged to roll it back. So the government had just introduced it. It had only been up and running for whatever it was, 18 months and yep. um, or 12 months, I think, a bit over that. Yep. And um, and they had to defend it all over again and won that 2001 election, um, you know, the so-called Tampa election, of course, yep. the, the one that also had September 11 just before it. It was all kinds of um, turbulence around that. Yeah, um, and there were controversies with the implementation of the GST too. God, I well do I remember writing 500 million stories about, you know, what would happen to a can of Coke and what would happen to a barbecue chicken as opposed to a frozen chicken. It's just like... Uh, and it set a whole new tradition in political reporting. I mean, in, in the end, we, you know, a few elections later, we were talking about the $100 roast, uh, yeah. as uh, Barnaby Joyce was saying about the uh, the carbon pollution reduction scheme, I think. Yep. Um, I don't think that so, ever happened either. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about 
What, what do you think now about where he is? I mean, he, this is uh, where the government is now in terms of job seeker and job keeper. Um, you know, the plan is to to end these things in September. Yeah. Uh, all the talk is that this the, the economy is in uh, worse shape and facing a longer, steeper yeah. uh, recession than uh, perhaps was hoped for at the beginning. Right. Um, what are the political risks the, for him? We haven't heard the term snapback for a while. Have no, we, we haven't. Um, and that was... I guess you know. I mean, this is um, this is a crisis with few precedents, right? So um, because it's not a, I don't know, it's not a kind of proper recession, i.e., caused by economic factors. It's it's sort mm. of recession caused by this meteor slamming into the economy. Um, that was the you know result of someone eating a bat sandwich, you know, in <laughs> Wuhan. So I mean, it's very weird, and I guess that running into the uh, shutdown, the feeling that we were taking control, that we were deciding to shut down the economy so as to protect ourselves from the horrific scenes that we'd seen in emergency departments in Italy and so on, um, I guess it was natural to assume at that point, okay, we're in control so we can just shut it off again and um, bring things back to life. And there was this sort of talk of hibernating businesses and so on. Now, obviously, um, for all sorts of reasons, not least being that our um, commerce with other countries is just grievously affected by all of this in an ongoing way, that idea of sort of waking up businesses is is, is not going to be as easy as all that, right? Like so there's a really um, complicated question about the nature and advisability of ongoing government support um, and, of course, you've got, um, you know, uh, many, many Australians who have been relying on job keeper and job seeker who will be in a very bad way indeed if that's all just evaporated in September as was the initial plan. So, look, there's there's some huge decisions to be make, made and um, I think that they will hugely affect the government's um Standing, which is really you know rock solid at the moment, because they've dealt pretty well with a um, a shocking situation. And um, if you want a, a comparison, I mean, just look at the US. I mean, that is mm. a system that has responded badly. Um, all of the flaws, the underlying flaws in that country's health system and political system, have been opened up, exposing cankers of race relations and all sorts of questions that usually sort of thrum along below the surface um, of uh, American culture, I think. So, yeah, I mean, um, it's it's been a much better story here and I think you'd, it'd be a rare person who hasn't over the last few months just quietly given thanks for um, our political system, our electoral system and our general capacity to respond well to threats. Yes, it only took 120 years for the Commonwealth, for the Federation to actually uh, finally kind of, you know, get <laughs> into work. synchronicity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was really quite remarkable. But, of course, you know, there have been mistakes along the way as well and one of the yeah, more celebrated yeah. one was uh, Scott Morrison's uh, announcement on the, on the 13th of March, I think it was, pretty much the same time as he was setting up the National Cabinet, he announced mm. that there was going to be this um, – 
prohibition on groups of greater than 500 people. Oh, that was yeah. going to switch yeah. in from Monday, but for, on Saturday he was going to go to the footy and he was advocating that other people do as well. Now, it's not a huge thing, but uh, the, the sort of mixed message of that uh, oh, I think was, yeah. was, was, was pretty extraordinary. He, he's got a he's – a, well, Australia's got away with a few things that have gone wrong, mm. um, you know, relatively lightly, even the Ruby Princess – um, not closing the borders to the United States when they were really the major source of incoming infections for a while, things like that. Um, you know, I thought that I, – I agree with you. I think that that football thing was really interesting actually and I thought it was a definite um, research, re-emergence of that old Scott Morrison, the one who yeah. grabs the woman's hand and, you know, forces her into a handshake in this sort of bushfire plagued area there is an there is a thread of stubbornness in the prime minister just personally i think yes and i'm sure it was fired in the years when he was uh, immigration minister and he became very very defiant in the face of attacks on his immigration policies and that whole on water issue and the absurd you know refusal to hand over detail about what was happening with boats and so on Hmm. um he became and look it happens to lots of politicians that serve in those really difficult portfolios where you get attacked a lot you 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 develop almost this sort of perverse joy in (laughs) in um just refusing to back down. I mean, you see it yes. in Peter Dutton as well, um, uh, I think. Uh, you do. It's like you see in, in press conferences they behave almost like the the, uh, the the object is to give over no information and right. to sort of – it's like a verbal yeah. game of tennis. Or sure. Something. But, I mean, John Howard was like that too. I mean, God, I remember I don't know how many hundred press conferences where we'd play this sort of semantic game about the definition of the word sorry and why he wouldn't sort of, mm. you know, um, the national apology was something that he would not do because he gave us sort of lectures on exactly what you know repentance and what's the word sorry meant anyway look, i wonder if long... he's sorry about that now he probably wouldn't say <laughs> well possibly i mean but you know it's, it's really hard to be in a public position for a long period of time and not get defensive about your past you know statements yeah. and and what you've said and um scott morrison um wanted to stick to his guns with the footy and I'm going to go to the footy because going to the footy is great. And, you know, and as that, as those few days kind of rolled by, this idea that he was still going to show up to the footy started becoming, you know, ludicrous. Um, because remember, the world was changing very quickly at that point. And yet yeah. he kind of stuck by it for as long as he could. And I, I just thought, well, that's a like, that's a real throwback to the, Bushfire era, Morrison. I think um, hmm. he. Yeah, and I think to be fair, Easy was going to go to the footy as well, uh, briefly there, and and then decided not to. So it was uh, everyone was on a bit of a learning curve in terms sure, of the overall yeah. gravity of the situation. But I do think there's been, you know, some uh, recognition of that, some uh, moderating. You've even seen it, I think, in him being more polite in a number of those press conferences, some of which weren't going all that well for him. For him, yeah. those. Yeah. Monday night press conferences and so forth, but he, but you know the, sure. you could sort of see uh, a, a growing awareness that he was in a conversation through these journalists with the people of Australia, and that being super punchy all the time mm. is, is you know can turn people off. Yeah, certainly that the the demeanour did change. I agree with you, um, and I think well, for instance, I mean, I I thought it was interesting when um, a week or two ago he was he made the statements on radio about um, Australia not having had slavery and then yes. um, he capitulated and apologised. And I guess 
um, in another age, you might have fought that through, but um, fought with an F, I should say, fought it through <laughs> to its conclusion. But I think he thought it through with the TH and just thought, do you know what? No, it's not worth dying on that hill. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think when you've got a bunch of real issues <laughs> to worry about, your um, capacity to spend endless amounts of time on sophistry and um, the pursuit of um, cultural war issues, I think, should become less important, and I think probably it should do. Now, on that yeah. on that cultural wars thing, I mean, yeah. there is, consistency is important. And what do you think about the inconsistency of, on the one hand, shoveling billions of dollars into the economy to protect jobs in companies that are privately run and everything else? Mm. And then in respect of your own employees, people that, over whom you do have direct uh, responsibility, mm. maintaining pre-recession austerity programs or as they call yeah. them euphemistically, the efficiency dividend. Now, this goes obviously to the ABC but it also goes yeah. to National Gallery of Australia, a whole lot of universities, a whole lot of cultural institutions um, and, you know, there does feel like there's a, um, a culture war aspect or an ideological aspect to this. What do well, you think? I mean, as you say, those decisions predate the COVID-19 crisis. They affect um, organisations um, more broadly that the government doesn't view as um, supportive. I think, you know, that's just to put it baldly. Um, I think there's been, um, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the university sector, there's been I uh, just a, a really robustly and unnecessarily hard line that's been taken um, by the government throughout the COVID crisis. I mean, even redrawing the JobKeeper um, proposition seemingly, you know, with the effect of excluding universities, I think it's, look, I think it's short-sighted um, and that's just an opinion, I guess. I, hmm. I think that, um, you know, I mean, it's... Education is such a big part of our export product in this country. Yeah, it's, it's short-sighted, but it's also economically a little bit incomplete. I mean, as a sort of a policy yeah. suite, you're taking the third largest export, uh, mm. a sector that directly employs 120 or more thousand uh, workers, and you, you're sort of saying you know, you're on your own, sunshine, and that means a number of jobs are shared and a, a lot of capacity is shared and the and, yeah. the, and that sector is underperforming and that is at a time when you want your major sectors of your economy to survive so yeah. irrespective yeah. of whether you like them or not you know it just seemed to me to be a little bit churlish right um and you know by the same token i guess you saw this sort of lengthy process um in which the government kind of considered an um an aid package for the arts industry which is you know incredibly hit, hard hit one of the earliest of the hard mm. hit and yep. um, full of people who for structural and sort of cyclical reasons couldn't get JobKeeper either. Um, I mean, I've made a point several times of noting that we were really, really quick out of the gates with $100 million for zoos so that animals wouldn't go starving, but, you know, nothing for jugglers. So, yeah, that was a bit weird. Um, and, you know, eventually they've come up with um, a quarter of a billion dollar package, which is not inconsiderable. So that's, um, uh, 
like a really welcome move. But even in the announcement of it, you can see the Prime Minister absolutely emphasising that this is really for the roadies and the, you know, the, the, tradie and the tradies and, yeah, yeah, not for the lovies, um, yeah. which is, you know, hey, a buck's a buck. So really um, I'm sure that that package will benefit many people in the industry. But, yeah, it, it is indicative of like that is where the sort of ideological fault line still lies, you know, targeting arts and humanities students um, uh, on the on the in the road ahead, which is going to, I think, throw up all sorts of strange, uh, unintended consequences. But I mean, you know, the the tertiary sector has just been slogging along with all sorts of um, decisions and reversals and indecisions for a really long time. I mean, it's it's um, a sector that has been bedeviled by serial. Um, new education ministers with new proposals that end up not going anywhere and so on. So it's really hard to to, to flourish in that environment. And I think given that if there is a, a, a hope um, in terms of our energy uh, troubles that uh, the government's sort of hanging its hat on technology as a solution, you think, well, it'd be good to have a, a really great working um, tertiary sector because that's where a lot of this uh, brain work is going to come from. Indeed it is. Now, we're getting very close to time, unfortunately, but there's a couple of things I might very quickly go to with. Yeah. One, of them is, one of them is China. I'm, I'm interested in what your thoughts are about how the Prime Minister has, even during this, chosen this time to kind of ratchet up some of the pressure on China. And in the announcement of this uh, step up in investment of uh, defensive capability, mm. buying missiles and hardware and so forth, he's really vindicated in a way. Um, uh, you remember Andrew Hastie's somewhat inflammatory comments likening yeah. the, the, the rise of China to the rise of Nazi Germany yep. in the 30s. Well, uh, the Prime Minister has not exactly repeated that, but he's, he said uh, words to the effect, we have not seen the conflation now being experienced in Australia of strategic economic and political challenges yeah. since the existential threat faced yeah. in the 1930s and 40s. It yeah. does appear to be very much the sort of logic that Hastie was trying to put forward and for which he you know, received quite a lot of criticism. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, diplomat, diplomatic language, we're used to it being very pasty and um, remarkable, but I mean, when you hear a prime minister use the terms existential threat um, and also, as you said today, we won't surrender. I mean, there's a huge amount of, um, you know, evocative of conflict language going on here. And and look, they've been, I think that they've tried, I think, diplomatically to um, tread this line between the US and China um, they've tried to um, deal with all the obvious signs from China that there's big trouble going on, um, like a complete freeze out of normal diplomatic channels and these ad hoc decisions, um, you know, like on, on Bali, for instance, um, that hugely disadvantage um, uh, Australian producers. There's a limit to how many times you can say, well, I'm sure this is nothing, you know, um, mm. significant it's just a sort of uh, you know a, a subject specific event you know you've got to at some point acknowledge that there is a kind of a power shift going on here and I think uh, I mean I was I'm sure not the only person who was a tiny bit puzzled last week when the Prime Minister um, hopped up and um, delivered a press conference about this sort of cyber threat that was um, yeah. you know um, posing a 
you know, a terrible threat to Australian business and government without being um, absolutely um, clear about who was talking about it was quite clear. But I thought, well, what, you know, what's he actually saying? What's he actually asking people to do? I I couldn't quite understand um, the point of mounting a press conference, but now I can because, like, he's kind of preparing the ground for what would be, you know, a significant announcement about investment in um, in the defence of the nation. I mean, $270 billion over a decade is a just a giant amount of money. So um, I guess you've got to prepare the nation for, you know, what might be the rationale behind that deployment. Yeah, yeah, no, very very well put. The other th- quick thing I just wanted to touch on before we go is uh, the Eden Monero by-election. Now, of course, oh, yes. we don't know. We don't know this week, of course, who wins that by-election. Uh, we know that uh, no government has picked up a, a seat off an opposition in a by-election federally for 100 years or so. Yeah. Um, but there's a whole lot of reasons why And the last uh, time it happened, change. it was during a pandemic, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. There's a whole yeah. lot of reasons why could, this could this could be the one that breaks it or, or not. Uh, but it, would you agree that all the risk is really on Albanese's side? I mean, if the government doesn't pick it up, it's the, that's the way by-elections go. But um, if uh, if Labor loses just, it? To be honest, I just think it's really hard to apply all of those um, orthodoxies to this by-election. I mean, um, I think under the circumstances you'd probably expect the government to win it. They've been pretty cautious. You know, they've poured a lot of resources in there. The Prime Minister spent a lot of time there talking about tradies um, and getting on people's mm. lawns. Um, but, um, uh, you know, you don't have that same sort of, we're going to win this, this is about me versus him that you had with, um, you know, Turnbull before those terrible by-elections in Queensland that sort of began the the slide to his uh, ultimate defeat. But um, I think... Uh, it's been interesting to watch the Nats in the last week or two. Um, so, like, I think I think the the headline is you would expect the government to win this by election. I think most of the polling shows them a bit ahead, and given the circumstances, I think it would be a you know surprise if Labor won um, because of the times and these are extraordinary circumstances. Um, but really interesting, isn't it, to watch the way that the Nats, I mean, they've obviously collapsed into a puddle of cold soup when they were just <laughs> trying to work out who was going to be pre-selected. You know, there was a terrible scenes with John Barillaro in um, New South Wales considering whether to um, contest and it was shocking with all these blokes sort of scuffling over pre-selection and then eventually just the, the women who had contested it in the past stepped up and were available but um (laughs) interesting to see um what the Nats have been saying about ABC funding (laughs) in uh in the last Mm. week or two I mean that was a really interesting intervention by John Barillaro on you know expressing some concern about um the federal government's um treatment of the ABC now I mentioned that not because we're all about the ABC and that's the only relevant thing it's just an interesting um development particularly given how crucial the national broadcaster was in that very electorate of Eden Monero not very long ago when people actually literally relied on the ABC to save their lives and those of their families. Absolutely. Annabelle Crabb, thanks so much for being with us on Democracy Sausage. It's been absolutely terrific hearing your thoughts. Thank you very much. Glad to be here where the sizzle's happening. And thank you for listening. I'll be back with Democracy Sausage next Monday, Arvo. And until then, as my friend Maria Taflaga would say, wash your hands. She's a doctor, you know.